0: Well, I'm going to talk about what you're supposed to be doing at home on Sunday, because that's the future. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, we're still in the present. Okay? So we uh, I will uh, give a talk on what to do at home. It's usually called Dhamma in daily life. So we can discuss it then, all right? Okay? Anything else? Yes.
1: I found myself reacting to the whole meditation because um, and I I asked myself why and I realized that I've taken my body so much for granted and that this was you know, going off tedious and and well it was all right anyway, sort of saying all right it was hurting a bit here and there Mm. you know, stuff that and then I, I substituted that
0: thought with um, loving kindness in my body and after that I did have feelings of, of joy hmm. that sounds like a good, good idea <laughs> do it again and see what happens <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the feeling of joy should be preceded by the present sensation so uh, the, uh, if, if that's the, the direction, that could come, should come first, the pleasant sensation, and then that's after that, the feeling of joy. And uh, if the, uh, this method is tedious and unpleasant, it would, not, it would be an excellent idea to do the part-by-part uh, part at least once or twice a day Because it helps enormously for the purification, for all the things which I explained about it. But it's uh, all right to get to the uh, um, pleasant feeling through this, if it doesn't come through the breath. If it comes through the breath, it's all right to do it through the breath, whichever. But the the, uh, part by part should be done at least once a day. and preferably twice uh, in a in a meditation course. Anything else? Yes.
2: I wouldn't say it's sweet, but uh, just thinking about all that, uh, I have a feeling that uh, when when that sort of joy comes, that uh, and it can come in different places or through different things that I don't seem to be able to identify.
0: In a particular place at all. Well joy is the next step. At this particular point is the very first step, which is called PT and Pari PITI, which is extremely pleasant sensation and has only has joy only as a companion in the background. Joy doesn't have; neither does this feeling have a place. But we've got to get at it somehow or other. So the method uses that. But joy hasn't got; isn't -hmm. isn't really part of this particular um, process. It's a result of the pleasant sensation. What
2: I mean, in particular, is I have a seems to be uh, I go through the body and I can feel the different sensations of the body and then it seems as though loosely
0: speaking it's in the heart but I can't place it there it
2: seems to be here but it's as though you can't actually place it are you talking about
0: the joy? well I'm not sure what I'm talking about really it's a <laughs>
2: sensation of, of um, it is a sensation in a sense yes of, of li- upliftment of some, warmth yes yeah, and of um, um,
0: well. Mm-hmm. yes well the the joy part the second step which the first step should always be taken because if you don't go through the entry hall the house is even more of a mystery you have to go through the entry hall in the beginning in order to get the whole area clear in the uh, uh, afterwards when you're when one is skilled one can jump around and go from anything to anything, but in the beginning you have to go through the pleasant sensation The joy is very often felt as, as being uh, having its origin in what is called the spiritual heart, which is right here in the middle and it often feels as if it was like a little fountain bubbling up it feels warm, it has loving kindness and it, all those things uh, have uh, a place in that joy, and uh, it isn't, of course it's not bound to the physical, because it's an emotion, but emotions do have physical residue. We all know that, and we've all experienced that over and over again. So it has that kind of feeling with it often. That's a generality. It doesn't have to have that. But if it appears to be there, that's where one puts one's attention, so that the joy actually becomes a strong emotion. It can very well be there. It's often associated with that. But it could be somewhere else too.
1: Anything else?
0: I have explained so far the first and second step of the meditative absorption. And I have already said. That there are four of the fine material absorption and then there are four more so we have a pathway of eight and also it's interesting to note that in one particular discourse the Buddha says that one can become enlightened after any of them one can even become enlightened after the first one But uh, that means one has to be extremely concentrated. It's much easier if we learn to do all of them because it takes us into a different realm of experience which gives us a different realm of understanding. So the first two are not so difficult, neither is the third one. The fourth one becomes a little more difficult. The third one, we can describe from practice that it is a contentment feeling. Now the first and second one, the pleasant sensation, the utterly pleasant sensation and the joy have a bit of excitement in them, and it seems to be bubbling up and up. Whereas, having experienced the joy for some time, and times means that it's a good chunk of time and not just a momentary experience. When it's a momentary experience, it's not um, impressive enough to the mind. It has to become quite uh, a lengthy thing, so maybe 15 minutes or something like that. Without looking on the clock, one does know when one has had a lengthy experience. Because the mind now has had what it wanted, namely joy, it is contented. And the next step is contentment, and that feels as if the mind is sinking down a bit from all this bubbling up. It goes down a bit. Now all these are just matters of manners of speaking; they are not a reality that the mind doesn't go up and doesn't go down, but it feels as if it does. So the uh, the contentment which arises is a direct result, of course, of the joy which had been there and the joy is a direct result of the very pleasant sensation and the very pleasant sensation is a direct result of concentration and it all starts with watching your breath or the sensations each one is a result of the preceding one and as they are results of the preceding one they are all already existing and all we have to do is put our attention there So the contentment is there, and the joy is either deliberately or spontaneously put in the background of the attention, and it is there, it is in the background, but in the foreground is contentment. The contentment is afterwards understood to have been only possible because we were at that time wishless. And from that moment on, any intelligent person knows that the only way to be peaceful and contented is to have no wishes. None. Whatsoever. It's the only way. There is no other. We don't have choices. Little wishes, medium wishes, justified wishes, good wishes, nothing like it. Any wish brings discontent. And the only way we'll ever know it is by experiencing it. But having experienced it, we'll know it for sure. And every time a wish arises, and there'll be plenty of wishes still arising, there's no um, game saying the fact that we are still exactly the same as we were before, but we do know a little more after that. Every time a wish arises, the intelligent mind will know, Aha, I'm making it hard for myself again. Drop it. Now, the only way this will happen is if we have actually experienced what it's like to be wishless for at least a little while. And that is happening in the third jhana, contentment, because the mind already got what it wanted. It had inner joy. That's all it really wanted. And it had it to such an extent as it has never had it before, if that's the first time. So it's totally content. It doesn't want anything and that contentment obviously brings with it peacefulness and with that peacefulness comes a feeling of peace so the contentment slides into a feeling of peacefulness and in that third jhana this is the most impressive aspect of it that contentment leads to peace and nothing else does that's all it does there is no other way and it is like like that for everybody there's no exemptions that somebody could get to peace by wanting more or getting more it just isn't possible there are no such exemptions we're all made after the same mold which is still being used (laughs) and It all works the same way for everybody. And we have to experience it. And we, after having experienced it, we have no doubts. That's the way it is. Now, obviously, having entered into that mansion, there is nothing to stop us from seeing the other rooms. The only thing that will stop us is not entering again which means stopping to meditate and unfortunately more people stop than continue I have never quite understood yet why if they haven't been able to have the pleasantness of it, it's understandable naturally, if it isn't pleasant it's a bit hard to hang on to but having been able to get to at least that much and then stop seems to be quite um, amazing and yet it happens over and over again. So what I'm saying is that any calm meditation, any skill that you may attain in this meditation course gets lost if you don't practice. You don't stop for six months and then start again not a hope you don't even stop for six weeks and start again also not a hope you could stop possibly for a day here and there then it's alright but you can look at it as the same way as yoga exercises if you have learned yoga exercises they stretch the sinews and the muscles and you can do certain things quite well if you keep doing them and if you stop all that stretch contracts again and you've got to start all over again it's a little easier the second time it's the same with the mind it gets stretched it enlarges it becomes malleable and pliable it becomes has the ability of directing towards areas that it never even knew existed so it has an ability which needs to be kept going otherwise it contracts again the whole thing contracts then again to daily living and daily problems nobody's ever been able to solve all those problems that exist in the world without seeing them from a totally different view. We need a bird's eye view in order to see the problems for what they are. So if we allow the mind to contract again, not only will we be dissatisfied with ourselves, we have extra work to make it stretchy. Insight does not get lost. It goes into the background, if you don't use it any insight that you may have attained during this course, if you don't use it in your daily life, it goes to the back, like a language one has learned and isn't using. And it has to be resurrected through becoming aware of it again. But we don't lose it. It's just in the back of the mind. But the calm gets lost. So we will have to practice it. The third jhana shows us as an insight that having wishes is our passport to Dukkha. And since everybody's got all sorts of wishes, everybody's got free entry to Dukkha. Don't even have to pay anything. It's just there all the time. The second jhana tells us that Our sense contacts are not what they're made out to be. They don't give us the kind of joy that we can get in meditation, and therefore we're not striving for them so much, or not at all. Not so much. And the first one gives us the entry, so to say, into this inner life which everybody has, And from which we learn, and we learn the same from all three actually, that as soon as we give up trying to take control of the meditative process, we are actually experiencing it. Because control means nothing but being concentrated. But what we think control means is thinking as long as we'd like to be thinking. So we see that we have, even with the first three, and they are the easiest, we see from them that we have approached life from the wrong direction, like everybody else. I mean, there's nothing particularly uh, stupid about us. Everybody does it. It's just the way mankind handles matters. The one wants to have control, One wants to assert, one wants to have sense contact, and one wants to find in the world all that which is nice. And the more wishes one has, the more one can get, maybe. It's all the wrong way around. And here we have our own personal experience that it's the other way around. Now, that alone is already the beginning of a sincere search and in-depth search for a totally different experience than the one that one has while one thinks of oneself as a separate unit. Therefore, the meditative absorptions are not only giving some peace and calm, but they give us a totally different idea of what to do the fourth one is more difficult because it means giving up the observer to a great extent now in the first three we have a very definite observer the one we if we have no other recourse anymore for anything, we call that observer me. Well, that must be me. So in the first and second and third, we have a definite observer who knows exactly what's going on. If he doesn't know what's going on, we couldn't repeat it. So he's, he's even urged to look and see what's going on. The observer who knows that now is joy or now is peacefulness but in order to get to the fourth which is utter and complete peace or stillness the observer has to be chucked out 90% which means the the me idea look at me how nice I can meditate has to also disappear the me idea is of course public and private enemy number one but most people can't relate to that until they have experienced what it means to be without it to be without that mere idea even temporarily means that there is utter and complete peace and utter and complete peace can only arise if there's nobody there to disturb it So nobody there to disturb it means me has taken a short holiday. (laughs) Naturally, like all things that go on holiday and all people, it comes back. And uh, might even be quite proud of what it has done. But at least it has gone for a little while. I compare going from the third to the fourth with going down into a deep well. You can use any symbol you like. I'm using that one. In the third one, as we get contented, we sit on the edge of the well, dangle our legs, and are totally at ease and at peace with ourselves. And as we are so contented, we slide down into the well a bit more and feel that peacefulness, which comes from not experiencing any disturbance at all, which is not even the, um, the joy which is in the background. But as we go into, want to go into a deeper experience of peacefulness, we have to slide down further into the well until we hit bottom. Now, how do we do that? Only by giving up the idea, I got to be here and I have to be safe and I have to be um, experiencing something nice we have to give all that up otherwise we wouldn't be able to slide down into the well so to give that up and actually do it and experience a total stillness means that afterwards we know that this was only possible because this bothersome me that always has ideas, wishes and um, dislikes did not interfere There is a very small observer still in existence at that time because when we come out of it we do know that we've been in an utter stillness. But the observer is so faint that sometimes when it's been really deep and one comes out of that there's a bit of disorientation. Where was I? Where am I? that has to be counteracted and this is from a practical point of view for those who can do that by coming out very slowly not coming out and jumping up but moving the body a little bit very slowly opening the eyes some people even put the palms of the hands against the eyes before opening them I don't personally like it but some people do slowly opening the eyes and then recognizing the review the recap what did I do I was done first, second, third and fourth and what does this experience tell me what do I find, learn out of it and that too is impermanent and only then getting up in other words the transition because the depth of that fourth one can be so much that coming back to this kind of consciousness is a bit of a shock to the system this kind of consciousness hasn't got much to recommend it it's got constant problems in it whereas being totally still and Being totally at ease physically and mentally and emotionally, of course, has much to recommend it. Now, mind you, nobody can stay in that all day long. Not from an inability, but because life has to be, has to go on as long as we have a body. So we do have to do things. But the mind who is able, or which is able, I should say, uh, to do the absorptions, even the first three, is cushioned against the difficulties that exist for anyone who has a body, for anyone who, ex- who lives. It has a, a real cushion against all those difficulties because there is something entirely different to be found in here. Now these experiences, one, two, three, four, and, and we will find, I will talk about the others, just maybe for interest uh, sake <laughs> have often been called God experiences and that's just words we can call it anything you like in the Buddhist dispensation it's called the fourth jhana so what could be simpler or in English the fourth meditative absorption and they have been experienced at all times under all circumstances by people who have found that the spiritual and the inner life is more important than the world and all that that can be gained in the world. But again, I like to emphasize that someone who can do the absorptions does not necessarily mean that such a person will not live in the world or cannot live in the world. On the contrary, because one has this cushion, it's much easier to live in the world. Nothing is as important as it used to be nothing has as much sting as it used to have nothing really matters that much because it's all very impermanent and always imbued with the me idea or the you idea it's either me or you And with all that, how can it be absolutely real? So the the world does not disappear, nor does such a person have to remove him or herself from the world. The world is always there, but it can be dealt with on a level of ease, as if it had been oiled. The wheels have been oiled, and there isn't so much cranking and clanging anymore. And as we experience that, of course, certain interests fall away, certain occupations fall away quite naturally, so that there's far more time to spend with one's own inner life. The Buddha compared that to children playing on the beach. When they're small, they make little sand castles. And then to translate that into our modern language, when they get a little bit bigger, they might be playing with a medicine ball. And then they get a little bigger and they get a surfboard. And then they forget all about that and they bring a girlfriend or boyfriend. And so all the sandcastles and the medicine ball and the surfboard is all forgotten. So those interests that we had, whatever they may be, all fall away naturally and the interests congeal on a different level. It's a totally natural progression. We don't even have to do anything about it. And in that progression, of course, the people we get together also um, change quite markedly. If one has practiced for some length of time and keeps an address book, one can usually throw it away and get a new one. (laughs) it's very common so we have this fourth one as an enormously important experience because it is the first inkling of what it could be like if we were to let go of this me illusion completely this is not complete naturally but it has already the connotations of it that me has to be quietened down to the extent of not interfering we have to allow to drop it's often called the drop in some traditions so when we allow ourselves to drop into this peacefulness then we have a little forte of what, how nice it could be if the me would finally not make all its moves and dance around like a puppet all the time that wants to have all its wishes uh, taken care of. And we can see that it is a very disturbing influence. And the question that is asked, well, if there is no me, why am I meditating? It must be me that's meditating. As long as we believe that there's a me, of course there is a me. It's as simple as that. It's exactly, it's a mind formation, a mental formation, which arises again and again with our thought process. Because we can't think when we're in the fourth jhana, I mean, if we think we can't be in it we have that wonderful foretaste of a totally different level of experience there's the, in the um, in the Visuddhi we find which is a commentary we find a, a simile given for these four stages of meditation and it talks about a person wandering in the desert and not having any water being totally parched and of course very unhappy because of that now that's the person who's looking for joy and happiness And that would probably apply to practically everyone in the world and then that person sees in the distance a little water pond and this great feeling of excitement interest and bubbling over energy arises there is water now the first one that walks around the desert being touched is, of course, also when we start to meditate and we're trying to concentrate and nothing happens. And uh, then, because we only go by our own personal experience, we often have that um, opinion then, personal opinion, well, there's nothing to meditation. It just doesn't work. Or maybe I'm not uh, suitable for meditation because we keep running around in the desert without any water. So then we see the water. Now that's the very first absorption and the entry hall. We see this water in the distance and there's all this excitement and interest and then we draw near to the water and we stand at the edge of the water. And as we stand at the edge of the water, we're full of joy. We're still excited. We're full of joy. We've got it. It's right there. And then we jump into the water and drink to our heart's content. Contentment. Drink, drink, drink till we're full. And then we slowly and uh, carefully step out of the water and go to the nearest tree and lie down in the shade of the tree, totally at ease, totally contented, nothing anymore that could disturb us. Now, that's the fourth one instead of the shade of the tree which is of course only a symbolism I'm using the well because it does have that feeling of going down just words, but there are these actually in the fourth one it sometimes happens to people that when they do it at the very beginning that they're actually bending over because it's so strong, that feeling of going down with the mind, that the body goes with it. There's nothing to worry about. One gets used to all that in days where one is. It's, um, these are initial things that happen, and it's, quite, it's not so uncommon that people just keep moving forward, down, down, because it appears as if the mind going down. So we have these four stages, which are the similes given for these four fine material absorptions. And as I said already, they're fine material because, first of all, they're worldly. And secondly, we have already had some similar experiences in the material world, nothing to compare with the strengths and overall effect of course, nothing that has given could have given us the inside of I have already described but not so far removed. I mean we do know what joy is like and we do know what peacefulness is like. We have experienced it at times. but of course the kind of joy and ex- peacefulness that we have here in the meditation which is possible has an entirely different quality and that quality is then so much greater that we can hardly compare the other four are called the formless absorptions or the non-material rupa. now rupa being body again material and the syllable a and a in front is non so it is literally translated non-material but we also say formless absorptions either way is fine, formless jhanas and they are counted from five, six, seven, eight and I'll talk about them tonight I think it's probably not only that um, you may be able to uh, get get to these stages but also to show the pathway of meditation in its entirety and not that one can then immediately do it but it certainly gives the roadmap a completion on that particular aspect of it there are equally many steps of insight so we would need at least another ten days for those but um, I mentioned some of them anyway it's also quite a, a progressive pathway now You can ask some questions, if you like. Mm -hmm. Yes.
2: You said that uh, wishes, uh, you no longer have
0: wishes. No, I didn't say that. Uh You would have plenty of them. But what I did say was that you would know that the only way to have contentment which turns into peacefulness, is by having no wishes. Wishlessness is the only way to contentment. So, one would then, every time one has a wish, realize that one is opening up oneself to a little more dukkha, and try to drop the wish. Would you try to drop the wish?
2: Whether they're good wishes or bad
0: Yes, uh, certainly. you would try to. You would try to let go of all wishes because you realize that having the wish brings discontent into the mind, And as more discontent one has, the less one can meditate and get where one would like to be.::
3: but you just, you want to wish
0: to to No, even that. Even that, certainly, most certainly, you're determined to do it, but you would, wouldn't would wish to be good at it. Every wish is an open door to discontent, because it has arisen because of discontent. Now, this certainly does not mean that having had these experiences of the jhanas, no more wishes arise, but one knows what they mean one That they certainly make life difficult, and the more discontent one has, the more difficult life is. So we do have
2: kind of wishing prayers, even in these meditations, where so we wish our parents to be
0: happy, and so many others too? It's not a wish to have anything. We say, "May I." Yeah, my, my it's I
2: an guess.
0: it's an affirmation. That's an affirmation, it's not wishing something. Affirmations and wishes are the same Are not the same thing.
1: Right, may I, <laughs> I, I what? May I be a
0: millionaire. May I be a millionaire. Well that would bring so much dukkha I wouldn't wish that on anybody. That I wouldn't wish on anybody, not even my <laughs> worst enemy. <laughs> That's a real entry into Dukkha. Was well, it the, the third genre,
2: which is the wishlist statement? The other two still have some sort of wishes of some sort. You know.
0: Well, in the other two, uh, the first one, of course, uh, the excitement and the interest and all that, tells you quite clearly that that can't be it. I mean, you're looking for peace, you know. So, I mean, you know very well that can't be it. And that's why many people in the beginning, without instruction, because people do get there without instruction, not many, but some, uh, skip the joy part because they're bound to get some peace. They just want, get peace, want to get peace, and that's a very big mistake because the joy parts were important because of our essential desires. It's the most effective uh, counter-antidote uh, for essential desire. So, um, and then when you get the joy, well, you still want peace. Because it both are exciting. You see, it's the same, that simile. Remember the simile that I just told. If you're standing by the edge of the water, you still want to drink. Right? You're very happy that you're there, but you want to drink. And uh, so then, you go and drink, and then you're contented. And the contentment then shows quite clearly that that's the only way that you're going to get peace is by stopping to wish. And the the less we uh, wish,es the more we can do that, the easier it is to meditate. You see, determination to do something is not to wish to get something. The determination, I've said that already several times, but I'll say it again because it's a very important point. Determined to sit and to meditate, and determine to give yourself to it. But not the determination, or I should say the, the will, rather, to get something out of the meditation, but the determination to do it. There's an enormous difference between the two. One is giving, and one is getting. So that one has to really be sure how one approaches a meditation. I'm, I'm not happy in the world, I want meditation. and it doesn't work. It works initially to come here. But then it doesn't work any longer. Then one has to sit down with the determination to let go. And to do it. To just do it. So not the wish, but just to do and if one has the an intention or the wish and the will, I want to get this whatever it is I can get, you know, first, second, third, whatever, doesn't work, can't can't be done. So we're quite it's a quite uh, obvious uh, uh, lesson in how we produce our own dukkha all the time. Very interesting, actually.
1: Anything else? So, I'm sorry, uh, to clarify what Colin said about you know, wishing loving kindness, in other words, if you're giving loving kindness, it, it's the way you put it. I mean, um, you don't actually wish or desire somebody to be happy, you give
0: them that. That's right, that's in the loving kindness meditation. I think he was talking about all these affirmations that are uh, particularly uh, used a lot in the Tibetan tradition. And we use it too. May I, uh, our loving-kindness contemplation, may I be free from enmity. I mean, may I be free from enmity, it just helps us to look at it and see if there's something we can do about ourselves. But, I mean, it's so easy to know whether you've got a desire in here (laughs) or whether you just want to do something. It's such, I mean, it's so easy to know. When you sit down on the pillow and you've got a desire, I'm going to get first jhana, it's just not going to work. But if you just sit down and do what you're supposed to be doing in your method or whatever, well, that's it. So if you have that uh, affirmation, may I be free from enmity, you do something about your enmity. You don't wish it. You do something about it. You don't go around saying, I wish I was free from enmity. I wish I was free from enmity. <laughs> I mean, you do it. Very much on the last thought, which gives it the rebirth consciousness direction, and as we get that direction, it's, it's depends upon the karma resultants we have made. And uh, when I say we, and I, this is a manner of speaking. In reality, there isn't me being reborn because me has always been a fantasy from the start. So it's impossible to re- have a rebirth in a fantasy. But we call it me and we and you and all that because otherwise the sentence won't work. That has been tried to talk about. We talk your sentences without me and I in it, and it just doesn't work the whole language becomes um, chaotic so uh, it isn't to make us whole it's like water finding its own level so whatever has been happening and whatever has occurred that puts us on a level and that level we then reappear as reverse consciousness and whether we ever become whole or not depends upon our practice. Whole and holy are the same words. So the practice is all that matters. Our birth as such does not have that as an intention. There's no intention behind it. We choose it through our own karma resultants to have that level where we belong. Up here? next question what in your opinion does the future hold nothing
3: <laughs> um.
0: <laughs> that's an easy one that's easy
3: <laughs>
0: so now there's a certain possibility of what the future can be. It will be replaced by telepathy how would I know <laughs> I have not a clue what other people are doing I mean all I know what I'm doing but what others are going to be able to do that we will heal ourselves through thought rather than pills well why in the future why not now that the clock will cease time will be unimportant well that's now isn't it we will live longer or shorter in years Today we live longer than we did, say, a hundred years ago. Question mark. Well, um, the beginning of the of the question is uh, is wrongly put. I try not to teach by opinion. I try to teach by what the Buddha taught. And if I ever insert or inject my own opinion, I usually mention that 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 is just my own viewpoint. Whatever I teach is culled from what the Buddha has said. All I do with it is put it into the modern type of language which is easily um, understandable for us. And I elaborate on it in certain instances because it's too short and succinct. But I try to stay away from opinions as much as I can. The Buddha said, that the Dhamma will last his teaching will last 5,000 years after his Parinibbana and then the words Aniccadokarnata will not be heard again until the next Buddha arises and, there he thought, and that is eons away whatever eons are and there's even a a description of what an eon is there's a description which actually uh, has um, its um, identical description in German folklore and here in the commentaries it's described as such there is a granite mountain seven Georgianas high Seven yoyanas long and seven yoyanas wide. And a yoyana might be a mile. One isn't sure, but it might be a mile. So it's seven miles high, seven miles long, and seven miles wide. A granite mountain. And every hundred years, a man comes with a silk handkerchief from Benares, which is the finest silk in India. And he wipes that mountain once when the mountain is gone an eon has gone by so who knows what an eon is we have a very similar story in German folklore where a little bird comes and pecks at the mountain once every hundred years and the mountain is gone and the eon is gone so after 5000 years the whole of the Dhamma disappears until the next buddha arises the next buddha's name is known it's, he's going to be called Maitreya which means, which is the Sanskrit word for metta, which means love or loving kindness and that one cannot put into numbers when that is going to happen there's another thing in the commentaries which is quite interesting and um, which fits in here also It says that exactly in the middle of those 5,000 years there's going to be 100 years when the Dhamma has an upsurge that far more of it will be available. And we are now in the 35th year of those 100 years and it is quite true that Dhamma has never been so available to the West particularly also because Tibet was overrun by the Chinese and Tibetan teachers Lama means teacher Tibetan Lamas have come to the West and have brought the Buddhist teachings as they have been perpetuated in Tibet to the West but not only that because of the ease of our technology and our transport uh, through the jet planes, we have been able to get at the teachings far more easily. So there is an upsurge of that. Although one could say that in Asia there is a decline because there has been so much turmoil. But in the West it's an upsurge. So we're in the 35th year of this Hundred years. And the inference from that is that if we don't do it now, we may not get another chance. Because who knows whether we're going to be around when it reappears eons away. And is anybody willing to wait eons? It needs a lot of patience. Eons of patience. And in all those eons, we get reborn over and over and over and Dukkha over and over and over eventually I think one becomes tired of that, all, all that Dukkha there is another discourse by the Buddha which uh, tells about the past and the future and I don't have to have opinions about it because it's written right there in the Pali Canon I don't even have to bother my head about it all I have to do is read it and if one really wants to know those things they're all available the Pali Text Society has been in existence for over a hundred years in England and have translated every word the Buddha ever said into English some of it is a bit archaic English because it was started a hundred years ago antiquated English but then of course that's not such a drawback here in this country there's a little archaic or antiquated because <laughs> after all the <I> mean, <laughs> culture does <laughs> live all that so it's all available and uh, our own views and opinions really are they, they are an ego support system naturally but they're not really that uh, important it's um, we can it says you know about being enlightened to have no views only experience the more views one has the more difficult life becomes because all these views always end up in negativity one doesn't like somebody else's views so with the Buddha's explanations are not necessarily views and the contrary they are what he knows so he says that in the beginning the people on this earth didn't have to work it's sort of a paradise story because the earth was sweet and one could eat it it tasted lovely and then people misbehaved you know like with the, in the Adam and Eve and uh, eating the forbidden apple and all that they misbehaved as they usually do and and uh, So the result of that was that the earth no longer tasted sweet. One had to go and find berries and herbs and uh, um, leaves to eat. And that was still all right. But then they misbehaved even more. And then they had to start working with the sweat on their brow to get enough to eat. And in those days, in the beginning, they had quite long lives because we have read these stories where people have lived several hundred years and as they became less and less well behaved the lifespan reduced itself and it reduced more and more and at the end of this dumber period of 5,000 years a person will be mature at 10 years of age and die and that's all due to the lack of moral conduct and virtue moral conduct and virtue is the the upholder of human life now I have no opinion about this at all I'm only relating what's written in the Pali Canon and it is uh, a bit like a Genesis story and uh, has some of the same connotations in it but it also says that during those 5,000 years of which we have just passed the halfway mark moral conduct and virtue declines evermore continually and I would say we could say that is so it is when we look at what is happening now and what is a real really commonplace nowadays in big cities I'm old enough to say when I was young that wasn't happening when I came to Australia in 1964 in 1965 or 66 I don't remember now the newspapers were full of a murder of uh, actually a double murder of two girls who had been hitchhiking had never happened in the history of Australia ever before the first time that ever happened and then it started happening all over the place and it's still happening so I think there is truth in the fact that morality is declining In fact, it is not only that people don't obey these things anymore that are so clearly spelled out in the Ten Commandments and in the Five Precepts, but that there is a certain different view on it. And the Buddha said that makes life decline. And it does. Even though our technology is trying to keep us alive, it keeps us alive sometimes very much to our detriment. And the life declining does seem <coughs> to take place. So this is a story of, are we going to live longer or not? No one won't, will we be shorter in yet. And some of this, why we live longer, is because we have a lot of uh, medicine, of course, but it, uh, the, um, the death rate uh, in childbirth and that has been reduced, but that's due to our medicine, but the rest of it uh, applies to that what I've just told talked about um, this is the only the only two things that the Buddha said about the future that it will disappear after 5000 years and that will, we will live shorter because it is quite clear that neither the past nor the future, will help us to become enlightened now. Now is the time to do it. Not in the future, not in the past. All the things that we try to think about of future or past, all escape routes. We're all trying to get out of our present Dukkha. But that's not the way to get out. The only way to get out of Dukkha is to practice now. So I think that this is anonymous, so that's And see whether that's enough or not. What did the Buddha say about divorce? Nothing at all. Probably wasn't uh, common in his day. But the third precept of the five is Kamesomichachara, which means to refrain from sexual misconduct. And to refrain from sexual misconduct means that one is Um, reliable and um, can will, will stay in one's partnership and try to live up to certain rules now obviously today the divorce rate is another probably another sign of the decline of morality because it's too easy it's only maybe 50-60 years ago that it was frowned upon it wasn't thought to be nice now that doesn't necessarily mean that it shouldn't have happened in some cases but nowadays when it is everybody does it so why don't I it's so simple and so easy and society has to stop frowning upon it because otherwise it never get out of frowning so it it isn't a big deal anymore, I think that very often not enough uh, time is given to try to live up to certain um, standards of behavior. The sexual misconduct is particularly mentioned as the third precept and we can see from that that it was probably one of the greatest difficulties also in the Buddhist times. And if one is, for instance, in the Thailand, in the northeast, where there are the forest monasteries, and listens to one of the teachers giving a talk there to the villagers, and either understands Thai or has it translated, that is always talked about. Always talked about. Behave nicely in your family, look after your family, stay with your family be a good family person this has a a constant um, refrain the villagers apparently need that injunction just as much as the city people well to have no sexual misconduct means of course no adultery it means not hurting another through um, physically or emotionally it means to be faithful and being one of the precepts one can assume or infer from that that divorce wasn't exactly what the Buddha would have um, recommended which does not necessarily mean that there are not certain cases and situations where it's necessary where where there are reasons and that uh, these reasons are so compelling that it just doesn't leave a way out so he didn't say a word about divorce please tell us very briefly what is dependent arising and the symbol of the wheel well I'm afraid to do that very briefly is absolutely impossible but if I remember correctly I can't remember one book after another. The When the Iron Eagle Flies is about dependerizing. I I can't remember exactly anybody read it lately? (laughs) It's about dependerizing. So maybe if you could read the book then you might know a little bit more about dependerizing. The dependerizing is um, cause and effect. And the real is nothing but a teaching aid. And uh I know the German book that I just coming out is about dependerizing, but this one is too, isn't it?
3: Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Well may I suggest then to read that one. <laughs> hmm? it, uh, uh Is it possible to give us a very brief idea of Hmm? (laughs) non-self? Who dreamt this one up? I have a good idea who did. What does sankara mean? Uh, Sankara is mental formation. And uh, it's also translated sometimes as karma formation. Because the mental formation makes karma. And uh, it's just the word for the fourth one of the four bits, four aggregates of the mind. And uh, it is the, um, everything that happens in the mind. And because of that, it's sometimes translated it as karma formation. Because that's how we make karma. What does Atman mean? Atman is not a, a Pali word, and it's not something that the Buddha uses it is uh, probably the same word as Atta, which means me, I, self. Well, self, more likely, than anything else. And Atman, in the Hindu tradition, is the highest of the um, Brahma. Brahma is that which is the highest, and Atman is that which is the effervescent and, uh, well, Probably what we would call the Godhead. So uh, the Buddhist uh, teaching does not concern itself with Atman, it concerns itself with Atta, self, and uh, Anatta, non self. So um, Atman is strictly of the Hindu tradition. (coughs) That's it. Danka mean only what the Buddha taught. Dhamma, sorry. Does Dhamma mean only what the Buddha taught or does it have other meanings? Yes, it it's got lots of other meanings. Dhamma means law of nature, dhamma means the teaching, Dhamma means the truth, Dhamma means the law, and Dhamma also means phenomena. So it depends entirely in what sense is used. Has anybody noticed yet how how very much these questions are on the intellectual side and have absolutely nothing to do with practice <laughs> all this can be found a dictionary <laughs> um, a brief synopsis of non-self no, not at all I have already talked about it I have talked about it in practically every talk I've given I've I have given i i do not think there has, well there has I can't imagine that there has been a talk where it hasn't entered into if you look at impermanence if you look at your own photo album if you look at your own thoughts something must arise eventually it isn't an intellectual philosophical um, psychological explanation it's an experience because everybody experiences self constantly. Every time you get out of bed in the morning, you know that it's you getting out. Every time you sit down for meditation, you all know that it's you sitting down, isn't it? So experiencing self is the one side of the coin. Experiencing non-self is the other. It's not something that can be intellectually grasped. It can be something that people... Um, argue about and that isn't worth it I have mentioned it over and over again in everything that I have talked about including karma and
3: rebirth
0: does the idea of accepting the way things are conflict with changing situations which should be changed no it doesn't the, uh, it's not an idea accepting things the way they are it's a um, it's a relationship to one's inner being which has become equanimous and peaceful and is in no way interested in rejecting and resisting but if one has a skill any kind of skill with that skill one can do something and if one hasn't got the skill it isn't really very useful to get oneself a soapbox it's a skill yes a soapbox no so the uh, the skill that some people have may be <coughs> you know on a physical level it may be on some other level but if we have it we can use it but the difference between changing something in the ordinary way or having learned to accept things the way they are is that if we change something after having learned to accept we change it without any kind of negativity dislike, rejection or resistance we just go about changing it that's all whereas if we haven't learned that we are quite violently opposed to the way things are because we want to change and that violently being violently opposed that's politics and with that doesn't make very friendly bedfellows usually it's life in the political arena but a spiritually inclined person can change things much more and much more impressively and far more lastingly than any political arena one just take a look at Buddha and Jesus they changed things the way they were there wasn't any um, any any rejection in them any negativity But their change has been much longer lasting, 2,000 and 2,500 years so far, than anything that people do when they wave banners around. So we have to learn that we can change much better without an inner rejection, but just with offering our skills and offering uh, our abilities. Does the first precept mean that we should not defend ourselves if attacked? The first precept is not to kill The first precept means not to kill anything that has life and if we are attacked certainly we can defend ourselves but we don't kill It doesn't mean not defend, it means not killing it's quite clear, it means non-killing Does the Kalama Sutta mean that we can pick and choose whichever part of the fit fits in with our own experience <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's
0: a good one <laughs> no it doesn't <laughs> it means something entirely different the Kalama Sutta gives ten points which are given by the Buddha how not to follow a spiritual path which criteria not to use and it's a very unique um, expression of a spiritual master because he includes himself. It's very unusual, it's unique in human history. He says not to follow a spiritual teaching because it has been handed down from master to disciple not to follow a spiritual teaching because it's been written down in holy books not to follow a spiritual teaching because everybody around one does it like family and friends not to follow a spiritual teaching because it fits in with what one believes anyway not to follow a spiritual teaching because it's a tradition not to follow a spiritual teaching because it has some mystical unexplainable and rather unbelievable features in it which are very interesting of course. not to follow a spiritual teaching because it's logical not to follow a spiritual teaching because the teacher is a reputable person and not to follow a spiritual teaching because the teacher said so but to inquire to inquire into every facet of it which means trying it out and if one doesn't understand it, ask questions are have always been part of the Buddhist dispensation and find out whether the teaching contains the moral precepts and whether those are for the benefit of oneself and others (coughs) and having inquired and found it found it to be true then practice it but don't follow any of those criteria so it isn't that you pick and choose what you like on the contrary, if you pick and choose out of the teaching of the Buddha what you like it's never going to flourish because obviously one picks out that what appears to bolster one's own views and opinions and not that which goes against one's own ego that which goes against one's own ego is always the hardest to take there where we have set ourselves down and say I believe, I know, I have and I will be so the Kalama Sutta is something really uh, of great importance for us today (coughs) because quite a number of the things that we are uh, requested to follow fall into those categories tradition, lineage uh, has there been transmission uh, books all that none of that has any bearing it may be true it doesn't the Buddha doesn't say that it's wrong he Says, but that's no criteria to take just because the guru says so so he of course includes himself in all that says don't believe a word try it out that's Oh, big writing. Does the law of karma and rebirth mean that there are present in the world perfect people who have reached the last stage and who thus will not be born again? Yeah, one hopes so. Would these people always be mystics and live a monastic life? Well, not necessarily but um, they might not live a monastic life but they would certainly um, one would expect them to lead a life which is not too busy and um, mystics well yes in a sense they probably are I don't really know does a law of karma mean that any brothers and sisters one has share the same level of consciousness at the moment of birth in that they have chosen the same parents not necessarily but it does mean that one has been together with these people in previous lives they are all part and parcel of one's uh, life continuum brothers, sisters, parents, uh, uncles, aunts all the close people and that's how we sometimes meet somebody we've never seen before and there is an immediate recognition and we also sometimes meet people we've never seen before, and there's an immediate dislike. And there's absolutely no reason for it. They're not, they're not ugly, they haven't said a word yet, they're <laughs> just standing there, and we immediately dislike them. And one could assume, it can't, one can't be sure, but one could assume that one's had an awful fight with them last time around. <laughs> <laughs> this is another thing about karma, if one has in this lifetime a really difficult relationship with anyone and can't resolve it, you can be quite sure you're going to get the same thing next
3: time.
0: It's much better to resolve it next
3: time.
0: Now, the person will have a different name and will look differently and you will have a different name and you'll look differently but the whole thing is going to happen all over again. So it's so much better to resolve it this time. Also much better for one's peace of mind this time, of course. So anything that's difficult in this life with a relationship with other people if we can resolve it this time around it will be to the, uh, our great benefit. Now, if the other person can do it or not, has nothing to do with it. That's their problem. But we can resolve it. What advice would you give if you get an unrelated insight while eating lunch? For example, bearing in mind, I eat when I eat, I sleep when I sleep, should you suppress it? Ideally, should meals be silent? uh, Well, yes, it's much better to eat silently because then one can be uh, attentive to what one is doing. Um, But if one gets an insight while one is eating and knows one has got an insight, one has already taken one's mind off the eating. Otherwise, one wouldn't know one's got an insight. So the question is no longer necessary. That insight has happened. And it's very nice if it happens. For instance, an insight one can get while eating is that eating is always, or very often, made to be like a festivity. And it's considered to be so important. But actually, it goes in on the top and comes out at the bottom. (laughs) So that's a typical insight while eating.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And it takes
0: some of this uh, importance away from what we eat. You know, some people really go to extremes. They become fanatic about what they eat, how it should be, where it should come from, what it should contain, what it should be uh, connected with this uh, fanaticism about food is uh, a totally ill-placed because it's nothing but fuel and it gets used up naturally we don't want to use polluted fuel but it's, uh, the extremes of fanaticism are not useful so that's a nice insight, yes and one wouldn't know one had one if one hadn't put one's mind on it and it's quite nice to uh, be aware of it and um, store it away for constant use. If. If our calls no, sorry, that's not right. If ourselves, Regenerate daily, and there is no seven year cycle. Why does puberty come with a vengeance? I think that's what it says. There is a seven year cycle. Why is there the idea that there isn't? Just because. Oh, is it? Oh, well, I haven't been in school for, I don't know, the last 60 years, so I, I have no idea what's new nowadays. Uh, I have no idea why purity comes with a vengeance except that the hormones go haywire, as far as I know. But uh, I really haven't given that any thought. In fact, I was very happy when my children were out of it. <laughs> when the Buddha was... Did the light put down or something? Yeah? Can you turn it off a bit? but I can't see this anymore that's better, thank you that's it when the Buddha was hmm. well, never mind I, learning, I think it is no it's not I was considering considering how to resolve various problems and he contemplated, meditated, or both on each one did he, sorry, I, I, this handwriting is a bit difficult When the Buddha was considering how to resolve various problems, did he contemplate, meditate, or both on each one? Okay, again, the question is not uh, quite right. The Buddha only saw one problem. He didn't have various problems. He saw (coughs) one problem, and that was birth, decay, disease, and death the cycle of life that everybody suffers from. And that's the problem he saw. In fact, he saw what are called the Three Messengers and then a the fourth one which showed him a monk. The Three Messengers which was an old person, a sick person, and a dead person. And that was the problem. And as he knew that this was a very profound problem because everybody is beset by it, he learned to meditate. And um,